0: Hey, thank you guys for being here. It was exciting. We started worship. We weren't worried that it's beautiful and summer out and that not as many people were here. And then I turned around halfway through the worship and our population, our, our census had doubled. So that's, that's encouraging. Everyone's repeating the word census, I hear. Census. That's a ridiculous word. No. Uh, <laughs> Alright, so our story tonight starts, it's October 11th or 12th of the year 539 B.C. And almost nobody knew it then, but this was going to be the most written about event for hundreds of years on either side of that date. October 11th or 12th, we can't be sure because of the way the ancient calendars worked, but uh, most written about, most famous event in all of ancient history for hundreds of years on either end of this event. So how does Daniel fit into this? It's been a number of decades since the last story that we heard with Daniel being a fairly young man. Now he's an old man, and the king of Babylon has changed administrations a number of times. There's been a lot of shakeups So the king has changed a few times. And just like with our own White House, if you have a change of president, you end up getting a change of cabinet and administration. So Daniel has sort of been phased out because new kings kept coming in and they just cleaned house with all the old wise men and all the old folks and uh, pulled in their new people. So nobody even knew who Daniel was. He was probably just teaching or just retired or something. He was old and uh, largely forgotten. And the Babylonian court with a new king is getting ready for a major party. Think of it, this is October 11th or 12th, this is sort of like the Babylonian Oktoberfest, right? It's the fall festival, crazy, like, most off-the-hook party that they would have every year, and they're getting ready for it. But there's another story. So tonight we're going to be switching between two stories, so try to keep up. We've got the Babylonians over here, Persians over here. And I'll try to kind of move a little bit, but I've, I've also got my notes, so we'll see here. All right? Babylonians and Persians, there's two major actors in this story. So about, I don't know, two dozen miles to the north, of Babylon. Upstream on the Euphrates River, the Persians were heading toward Babylon and they were conquering little towns as they went. And Babylon wasn't too worried about it. They were just letting them take the towns and they were going to let Persia knock up against their city walls and just kind of beat their heads against it and slowly run out of resources and strength. And Babylon's not too worried because they were the strongest thing around by a mile. Now, nobody knew it then, but what was about to happen was, you know, like I was saying, one of the most famous events ever recorded, uh, at least before Christ. So this Persian empire was coming down, and they were, the Persians and the Babylonians were the two most powerful empires by a long shot, but everybody knew that Babylon was significantly more powerful. So they had these massive city walls, nobody could besiege them, they were the thickest and tallest city walls in the entire world at the time, and nobody could cut them off and, and, and cut them off from resources because the Euphrates River, one of the largest rivers in the world, only the Mississippi and a few others compare with it, the Euphrates River literally ran right through the city. They built a hole into the wall so that they could never be besieged because the entire Euphrates flowed right into this long tunnel, right into the city. So there was really no way to cut off Babylon. So they're like, all right, Persia's going to extend their supply chain really long, they're going to burn out, and we're just going to let them go nuts at the city walls, and we'll, you know, throw napalm or whatever they had, you know, the ancient version of stuff that burns on them, and, and we'll let them go for it. We have infinite water, we can grow crops with the water from the Euphrates, we can catch fish, we'll be just fine. And then when they finally run out of energy and start retreating, we'll chase them back to Persia and take them over, and then we'll be even bigger than we are now. So they're in this party. You know, It's their Oktoberfest. They're not going to miss it. They say, let the Persians come. We'll show them what we've got. Our gods are stronger. Our walls are taller. Our city is bigger. And we have the Euphrates on our side. I mean, all of ancient civilization kind of took place between the, the Euphrates and the Tigris. They call it Mesopotamia. It just means in the, in, in, the middle of two, in the middle of the rivers. It was like the Fertile Crescent for a reason. So they threw this big party. They were ready for this big showdown that was going to happen, and they knew that they were going to win it. So the king of Babylon and all their court were drinking and partying and continuing with their normal fall festival. But these couple of dozen miles north, no one knows exactly how sure, how far upstream the Euphrates they were, something strange was happening. So yeah, there was this massive army of Persians just... I mean, as far as the eye could see, Persian soldiers ready to come take out Babylon, or at least to try. But if you would have been looking, you would have seen really something strange. Around the generals, you would see typical, you know, war generals, men who were older but clearly who were battle-hardened spend spent most, most of their life outside. They were strong. But then you'd also see these people who were dressed differently in more toga attire, who had the physique not of battle-hardened people but of scholars. A little bit more hunched. Maybe they'd spent, you know... 40 years, 50 years at a desk doing blueprints and doing math uh, because they were architects and engineers. And this would be really strange to see in an ancient army that you've got all these soldiers, but then around the generals you have a ton of architects and engineers, like you just pulled them right out of Athens and brought them to the front line thinking, what are you going to do with all the architects and engineers? I mean, just hundreds of them. But Babylon knew that the soldiers were coming, but they didn't know that the Persians had these architects and engineers with them. What on earth were they doing? So we'll leave that there. We're going to stitch these stories back and forth together. This is the most written about night. The Bible writes about Daniel, but a lot of the ancient historians write about the two different armies and what was going on. We're just going to be stitching it all together during this this time. So back in Babylon, uh, the hour was getting later and the the wine was flowing, the party was getting crazier at the king's court. And so in order to celebrate just how dominant they were and how they were about to dominate the Persians, they ended up bringing out the loot of all the various kingdoms that they had conquered. They're like, we're going to bring out all the You know, celebratory stuff of all the different kingdoms. And so, for whatever reason, the king wanted in their drunken revelry to bring out the gold and silver vessels that were taken from the Temple of Solomon, the temple in in Israel about 50 years before when Daniel was exiled and abducted. Daniel would have gone in this long supply chain, you know, kind of exiled to Babylon, and these special vessels of the Israelite temple would have gone with. The Bible says. And the king of Babylon and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So with these sacred vessels from Solomon's temple, they ended up just getting, you know, far too drunk. Uh, and then uh, many scholars even think, we'll talk about this a bit later, but that they were, um, I'm not sure if there's any young ones here, but they were, they were engaging in what you call maybe a love festival. You could call it that. Uh, so, Back at the Persian camp north of the city, uh, just a you know, couple dozen miles north, these architects and engineers actually began to take over instead of the generals. This would be an s- extremely strange thing to see 10,000 soldiers and all of a sudden these architects and engineers in Mortolga you know, scholar dress start to take over. And if you were an onlooker, you would have seen thousands and thousands of the fittest men on earth speaking hundreds of different languages. They would have put down their weapons and picked up shovels and started awaiting orders from these architects, and engineers. I printed front and back, so let's try not to get lost here, huh? Uh, <laughs> going green, guys, no. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, that's Persia. That's what have They're all dropping their weapons and picking up shovels. Back in Babylon, this party is continuing. The whole city is partying, but we just have the record of what the court was up to. And so when they brought up these Jewish temple vessels into this revelry, and worshipping these false gods, something happened that made them all weak and sick. A human hand appeared on the wall. This is where we get the phrase, "the writing on the wall," when something's about to go terribly wrong. So here they all they all are, you know, in their love fest, um, using these vessels made for Yahweh, and they're praising foreign gods with them, false gods. And all of a sudden a hand appears on the wall and starts writing. Just a hand. There's no body. It's a hand as if severed from the rest of its body, and it starts writing into the plaster of the wall. Not writing on it, writing into it. So it's, some, it's kind of like melting slash kind of burning the wall. And it says, the Bible says, the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So translation, he freaked out. That's what he was doing. Just like any of us would, right? If a hand appeared on the wall and it's like false teaching, I'd be like, what? Like, what? <laughs> what? To tell me what's wrong. No, uh, so just, if a hand appeared, I mean, this would freak anyone out, right? So, immediately, he demanded that all of his wise men, enchanters, and astrologers be brought in to, to read this. None of them were at the party. They're not important enough to get to, to be in this high-end party. They were probably all sleeping or trying to amidst all the shouting in the city, but they were all brought in quick to try to read what was going on on the wall. And so he demanded that they come in, and he said, whoever could read it would be made third highest in his kingdom. So, they pull all the sages and wise men in, but nobody can make sense of what's on the a wall. A lot of people think that's because the letters are in Hebrew and only Daniel can read it. That's actually not true. It's in Aramaic and the letters were actually shared. Um, so, everyone could read what it said. They just didn't know what it meant because it was kind of a riddle, kind of a wordplay. So, the king is just losing it. Okay? That's, that's the Babylonian court. So, the Persian camp, again, north of the city, these thousands of men, thousands of men with shovels, received their orders. And their orders are to dig. So all these architects and engineers, today you might call them civil engineers or water engineers, they spread out very long, and they know what they're doing, and none of the soldiers get what's going on, but they've got their shovels, and all these architects and engineers know what the plan is, and they bring, you know, I don't know, 100 soldiers apiece or whatever it is, and their orders are to dig, and then the engineers figure it out from there, where they are supposed to dig. So... um, Oh, I, I forgot to say this. Some of the, well, almost all of the Persians were digging. They did take a contingent of maybe 1,000 or 2,000 of their very finest, and they kept their weapons and they started off on sort of a uh, a scouting trip or a, or a a launch ahead group to go to Babylon. So back in Babylon, we're still in this court. Nobody could read the writing. The king is losing it. So what happens when a bunch of men are drunk and they don't know what's going on? Bring in a wise woman to you know, save the day, right? So. The queen hears what's going on, and uh, she wasn't invited to the party. You can imagine with all these men and uh, that are women that are there for the men, you can imagine why the queen maybe wasn't there originally, uh, but she hears about it, and so she comes in to figure out what's going on in her, her kingdom. Um, so she heard the commotion, she's probably the only calm, wise person, she's probably the only sober one there. So she comes in and she says, O king, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So, everyone's going crazy. Queen comes in, and she's the only one who knows. Hey, there's a guy named Daniel here. No one else even seems to know this, but she knows. There's a guy named Daniel. He's kind of old and retired, but he's the one who can do this. So, let's break there for a bit. We'll go back to Persia and see what in the world they're doing. So, north of the city, these few thousand Persian infantry are walking, riding uh, toward Babylon in the cover of night and they're, they're going quietly, right? Soldiers normally march, they're not marching, because when you take a few thousand people and start marching and actually start shaking the ground, first the household pets recognize it, and then later you can actually feel it inside the city walls if someone's marching. So instead they were walking quietly toward Babylon. And then, you know, how many miles behind them, the large Persian fleet was still at this digging. All these architect- architects and engineers with their mysterious plan were pointing and all the soldiers were just going at it digging. It had to be fast and it had to be at night what they were doing before any Babylonian messengers could figure out what was going on. What they were doing, the, the Persian forces that were digging, they were building the most massive trench that humans had probably ever built by hand, especially in a night. They were building a trench about 20 miles north of the city, and you'll find out why in a little while. So back in Babylon, they had no idea what was happening, right? They didn't have satellite defense systems, they didn't know what was going on. They knew that the armies were there, uh, but they were ready for him, but they didn't know that they had all these engineers. So king of Babylon is sweating, turning pale because of the severed hand burning things into his wall, and the queen knew what to do. Call Daniel. So he sends for Daniel, who he doesn't even know, and they go to his his house, and he's probably in this, you know, fitful sleep because the whole city was partying and reveling, and he was trying to just, I'm sure he wasn't joining it, right? He's probably just hanging out trying to sleep. So they wake him, And summon him to the king. And Daniel comes in, and this is the first time he meets this new king. And the king says something like, Ah, so you're the one. You're this exile of Judah that has the spirit of the gods inside you. And he goes on to tell Daniel about the hand on the wall and that none of his wise men can read it. And he says, But I've heard that you, Daniel, can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And I love this response. This is great. Then Daniel says to the king, keep your gifts. I just imagine, just like keep, keep your stuff, you know. Keep your gifts or give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. He has no ambition. He's an old man. He's lived a good life. He's like, keep your stuff, man. But I know what it means, and I'll read it for you. And it's at this point, or maybe just before it, Daniel looks around. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but you have to fill in the gaps, because at some point, Daniel looks around, and he notices the drinking vessels from his temple that he grew up in when he was a little boy, before he was abducted and exiled to Babylon. He looks around and sees the drinking vessels all spilled and all over the place that were used in this love fest. So imagine you're Daniel. You've been woken up in the middle of the night. You're bothered. You're kind of forgotten. You're living peacefully your, your elderly life, um, and then you come to this this temple in the middle of this idolatrous fest, and you see these cups. Now, they're probably not something he remembered often in his own memory, but when, I'm, when he saw them, I'm sure he knew what they were. Um, you haven't seen them for decades since you were a little boy worshiping in your temple, when you were free, when you had a future, when you could be, you, you saw the hopes of being a father, being a husband someday before they took him, and he sees this symbol, this symbol of, of the Israelite people. And now these cups are scattered, tipped over, profaned, used in idol worship. And he's super ticked. And he tells, this, uh, tells the king, he says to him, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, was truly great and powerful, the most powerful king on earth. And then I'll paraphrase the next part because it's kind of long. But he basically says that your predecessor, the most powerful man on earth, God humbled him and essentially made him mad. There's this whole interesting story. We skipped Daniel 4 because we, we, we didn't have time to go through it in our, our series. But Nebuchadnezzar was the first of many since where um, there, there's a mental illness where a human comes to believe that they are an animal. They're not just kind of being weird. They actually come to believe that they are an animal. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, thought that he was greater than God. He was the most powerful man on earth. And, you know, you, you know what happens to celebrities, right? And so sometimes you get off kilter. And uh, God humbled him by, in a sense, letting him go mad. And Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a cow and they named a condition after him, and for the life of me, I can't remember, you could find it, it's something like bovine, some some sort of syndrome, where he thought he was a cow, and he lived out in the wild, and he, like, walked around on all fours like a madman, and some people used to read this and say, like, oh, the Bible's just going overboard, but then we've dug up other accounts from other non-Jewish, you know, historians and stuff that wrote about how Nebuchadnezzar went mad for a period of about five or ten years, and thought he was a cow, like, this is just, like, this is history, um, and so Daniel is sort of reminding this king of this. He's like, your father was the most powerful man on earth, and God let him go mad because he was too prideful. And then he, came, he repented. He realized that Yahweh was the true king, and then he recovered. And we see this in the history, too, that Nebuchadnezzar recovered and came back to be a full, competent ruler again after thinking he was a cow for a number of years. Uh, so <laughs> I'll skip the, the longer story of that. And then he says to the king directly, he says, you knew all of this, this whole story about the cow thing, Yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. And then he reads the message, this famous writing on the wall, the riddle. And it's only four words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. These are all um, Aramaic words. They were standard weights. This is like, imagine you go to buy anything in the ancient world. You want to buy wine, you want to buy spices, bread, food. These were weights. So by the sort of ancient cash register, you'd have these metal weights, a mene, a tekel, a Paris or a parson, they were different measures of weight, because if you wanted to buy so much spice, it had to be fair, and they put the one weight on the one side, and they put the spice on the other to make sure that the weights all worked out. So this is a system uh, for weights, and you would buy things in these. Now, this gets kind of tricky here. This is just some geeky grammar stuff, but the, the last symbol he both calls a Paris and a parson. It's the same thing, a, a, a peres, P-E-R-E-S, is one and a parson is two things that divide into it. So think of a dime and two nickels. That's what a paris and a parson are. And he he flips them. So everyone else could read those those words, but uh, they didn't know how, you know how to how to understand them. But Daniel knew what was going on. So um, let me just give a little background about this why why these scales. So in their their Babylonian what do I call it um, Oktoberfest, they were celebrating this constellation. Um, of Libra, because she came up in the month of basically October, Tashritu, they called it. And they were celebrating this constellation of Libra. And if you've ever wondered why the the word pound, as in like this is 20 pounds of flour, why the word pound is, uh, um, why the abbreviation is LBS rather than anything to do with the letters for pound. Why is it LBS? It's for Libra, this constellation. It's a constellation that comes up in the sky, and it looks like somebody with a scale, one of those ancient scales where you put things on either side and it goes up or down not like our modern digital scale you know, for you young people here. No. Uh, <laughs> ancient scale, right? Um, so they drew her as a scale. So here they are celebrating and honoring the constellation of the scales, Libra, and then this hand appears and starts listing off things that you might put on a scale. And it's just, I just find this kind of interesting. Like, what a, what a great argument for contextualization, right? Right? That, like, here they are, like, God's like, all right, I'll, I'll deal with your cultural norms. You're celebrating this constellation of the scale. I'll, uh, I'll speak to you through a scale. I can, I can do that. God is constantly doing that, speaking to the Egyptians through the plagues that were their gods, and speaking to these Babylonians through the scale that they were celebrating. And uh, every, every wise man there saw what was written on the wall, but they didn't get what it meant, because they were stuck in the nouns. They were stuck in the weights and trying to figure out what significance the weight had. But, and then we're getting into some language stuff here, but Aramaic and Hebrew, it's kind of fascinating, they don't write down vowels when they write down their words. They just write down the consonants. Like, imagine trying to take all the vowels out of our words and just figure out, like, what's going on? Like, imagine the word eel, right? So you just have an L there, and you're like, what's going on? Anyway, um, that's like, that's what their, <laughs> their, their language was like. And so it left a lot of room for wordplay, uh, double entendre, you know, multiple interpretations. And so here, just these consonants are up for these weights, So while everyone else was just seeing things and seeing the weights, Daniel saw that, but he also saw the verbs and the actions, that you could could take those same three consonants and and understand them as passive verbs. So while they were seeing, you know, weight, weight, you know, different kinds of weights, he was seeing numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. These are the words for numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. And he says, "This this is the interpretation of the matter mene, God has numbered. So he's filling in what this means. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, which could mean weigh, it's the same as the Hebrew shekel, if you've ever heard of the word shekel. This is the Aramaic version of that. He says, tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and the balances and found wanting or found lacking. And then this Paris word, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, and he's just, he's using all this brilliant wordplay here, because parson is uh, two equal parts that make a Paris, right, and so he's saying, here's, parson is written on the wall, and it's a division of a Paris weight, and so he's saying, not only are you divided, but parson sounds exactly like Persia in their language, so God is using this kind of crazy riddle that only Daniel gets, so he's saying, you've been numbered, you've been weighed, and you've been divided, and the word for divided sounds just like Persia, you've been divided into Persia, and so that's, he just stood confident uh, and, and, and told him, your kingdom is given to the Persians. So, and it reminds me, there's earlier in the story when he's maybe 18 or 20 years old, he gets done with an interpretation in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, the dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. And I just think, like, it's just so bold. And I get the sense, the same kind of um, body language is coming out here, that Daniel doesn't doubt himself in the least. This is what's going on. So, the king has just heard that his days are numbered, that he's found lacking by the god of this freaky hand that just totally scared him, and that he is going to be divided and conquered by Persia. And Persia, he just so happens to know, is coming down to take Babylon right now. He didn't think they had a chance, but all of a sudden he knows Persia's coming, and he just got this omen, this prophecy that Persia is going to take him over. Uh, So it's terrible news, but after hearing this interpretation... He doesn't doubt that Daniel is right. I mean, after seeing a hand burn something into your wall just out of nowhere, you tend to believe, you know, the only person that knows what's going on. So he actually follows through on his promise, even though Daniel didn't care. He does make Daniel the third in his kingdom. And so you kind of get this sense, like, he doesn't like the prophecy, but he's like, well, I will make Daniel the third in my kingdom because, you know, it seems like he has an inside track with whoever that hand thing is, and I don't want to make the hand mad And I don't want to get conquered by Persia. So maybe, you know, if I follow through on my promise here and put Daniel in third, maybe I'll be okay. Uh, But not a bad intuition, but it wasn't in the cards. So just north of Babylon, maybe a mile now, we're getting close to when these two groups meet, Uh, this large group of elite Persian soldiers was completely sober and completely ready, waiting right along the banks of the Euphrates River, but just still, they were waiting for their sign. They didn't have cell phones, right? So they were waiting for the moment when they could move. Much farther behind them, the massive trench was ready. So let's see if I can explain how this works. The Euphrates River was here, but a long ways away from the Euphrates River was a naturally low place that could be a lake if there was a water source. It was lower than the Euphrates River, and it was massive. Like, just imagine, like, something the size of one of our you know, large lakes here, but, and lower than the river, but it's just like hundred miles away or something. So they put all these soldiers in a crazy line and started building a trench from the low plain, the low flood plain, and building the trench toward the Euphrates River. And they left like a twenty or a forty-foot gap there. So you have this crazy, powerful river. You have a natural floodplain that's miles and miles away, and they started digging this trench from the floodplain toward the river. And they were waiting because they didn't want to go too early or, or too late; otherwise, it would screw up the whole the whole plan. Uh, but finally the time came and they cut that 20-foot gap. So they dug out the 20 to 40-foot gap between the trench and the Euphrates River. And at the same time that they were digging out this trench, this is confusing even for me, this is, but this is like, this is amazing. Some of the, the, what they call it maybe the most um, ingenious military trick in all of history, at least as it, as it concerns water. So, they started digging out this 20 to 40 foot gap, and then, like, another 10,000 soldiers started sandbagging the actual Euphrates River. Now, imagine bringing a sandbag into the Mississippi River. Like, it's not going to do anything, right? But if they don't have any powerful machines back then, they just have horses, right? But if you have thousands of men all taking something like a sandbag and bringing it into a river at the same time, it won't hold forever, but it will hold for a while. And so they were bringing thousands and thousands of pounds of sand into the Euphrates River at one spot, and then they were cutting this nice little channel where the water could go unimpeded toward this trench that would bring it in to a floodplain. So this water was diverted and started filling up this, this floodplain. They, they actually managed with just manpower to block one of the most powerful rivers on earth just with sandbags and a trench. Um, but that was maybe you know, a dozen miles behind this scouting party. So the soldiers waited, you know, not too far outside of Babylon, but they didn't know exactly when when it would go down behind them. They were just sort of waiting to see if anything happened with the water. But then it happened. The river actually kind of died. It stopped flowing. So imagine, um, imagine you're watching the mighty Mississippi flow down. It's like 15 feet deep, just crazy, just megatons of water coming your way. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait, do, you, do I visibly see the water line going down? Like, just yeah, second by second, you can start to see it go down. And just within a matter of about a half an hour, that went from a 15-foot deep river that you could, never, you could never bring a whole army into that thing, all of a sudden to just a little lame trickle, um, which I just think would be amazing to see. But no one in Babylon noticed because a lot of the people were either asleep or they were just, you know, partying their minds out and didn't even notice when all of a sudden the river basically went dry and, and dried up. Um, and they were thinking, you know, behind this, behind the walls, behind the river, they didn't have anything to worry about because no one could get into their city and no one could ever come through the river because of this long tunnel thing they would built that it would drown anyone who tried to get into the city. It's not like they could just dip under a wall and then be in the city. It was a crazy long tunnel wall thing. Um... So nobody had ever pulled this off before, but Persia said, what if you could turn the Euphrates River off? Like, what if you could divert it if you could turn it off like a spigot in your sink? And so they dammed up the river, flooded this plain, and for a few hours it gave them basically an empty, muddy riverbed that was open. Now, if you remember before, Babylon thought they were so safe because the Euphrates River went right under their city walls. They had it kind of built into the structure. And so no one could ever get in before because you had 15 feet of roaring water coming right through their city wall in a perfectly built space for it. And all of a sudden, that whole stream of water just dries up. And what do you have? You have basically a 15-foot tall, you know, 50-foot wide muddy hole in the city that's quite large for an army to be able to walk through. So this scouting party went right under the walls without a fight. It's one of the greatest tricks in all of military history. They turned off a river the size of the Mississippi and just walked right into the city right in the, the spot where the river should go. And when a few people on the street saw what was going on, they would scream and, you know, holler and, like, try to, you know, raise a ruckus so that Babylon would do something about it and send some soldiers out and fight. And I just think this is even more genius, that the Persian soldiers instead would just hoot and holler like they were partying, like, like drunken revelers. They would just mimic the sounds of revelers in the street, and they would just do that louder. And so anyone, any sort of official who was inside, just like, oh, there must just be a big group of partiers, you know, just a big parade of, of mob partiers outside, and they walked right up to the royal palace. We're talking the strongest city that had ever been on the face of the planet. They walked under the walls in the, the riverbed, walked right up to the palace, and they just went right in and basically slaughtered all the royals. They left some of them so that they could kind of make them vassal leaders, and Daniel happened to be one of them. Uh, but they walked in, they took Babylon without a fight, no counterattack, no battle. They just walked in and had their way with the city. And in the blink of an eye, the most powerful empire on earth was done. It was now Persian territory. Probably the most famous military trick ever pulled, at least that I've ever read about. And just like Daniel said, you, how did, I forget the, he basically said you will be, Your your kingdom will be divided and given to the Persians. And that very night, the book of Daniel says that very night, he was killed. That all happened on the same night. So you have the biblical writers writing about Daniel. You have Persian and Roman and Greek and all these other historians writing about the battle. And this ends up being the most written about few hours in all of ancient history happening that, that day. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So what happened next? Daniel was one of the top officials in the country. Now probably top two, right? Because the king got killed, so now it's Daniel. Was three, now he's number two or something. I don't know how how it works. Uh, And then the Persians wanted to keep some kind of a sense of order rather than just killing all the leaders because you get civil wars and stuff. So they they kept some of their leaders in charge, and Daniel was that leader. So not long after, there's Daniel, there's other stories we won't go into, but through Daniel and some of his leadership under the authority of Persia, through Daniel, through Nehemiah, through Ezra, Esther, and some others the Jewish people not long after this would actually be released from Babylonian exile. One of the few times this has ever happened in history where an entire people group is taken into slavery and then years later just sort of said, all right, you guys can just go. And then they just did a mass exodus across the Middle East back to Jerusalem. So God's story wasn't complete yet because 500 years later, he would send his son people and land that he had promised them. So we know that there's these, all these Jewish prophecies that this certain, this land would be theirs and all of humanity would be redeemed through the Jewish people. And these are all these, these prophecies that, you know, the, all peoples, all tribes, all nations would be redeemed through the Jewish people because of their space on the Jewish land and what they would do there. But that can't happen if your entire identity and faith and, and meaning and language is all just completely devoured by Babylon. If redemption of the human race is to continue through the Jews in the promised land, but there are no Jews in no promised land, then it's all over. And so God uses Daniel and all these other characters to get the Jews back so that they can establish themselves, and eventually all people would be able to be redeemed through the Jewish line and through Jesus. Of course, they don't know Jesus at this point yet. So God, I keep seeing this in Daniel. When, I, when we were preparing to do this series, I didn't realize that almost every story in Daniel has some of the same uh, undergirding themes, that God is in control of history, that when everything seems really bad and everything is going down, that God seems in control of history, that he is in control of destiny. and He destined the Jewish people, as, as strange as it seemed that, that they could ever get back, he destined them back to Jerusalem until the time when God himself would intervene in, in history physically in, uh, in the person of Jesus. So in the ancient world, there were a few things that were sure. These were things that people knew in the ancient world. One, Babylon was indestructible. That's what they thought they knew. Babylon was everlasting. Three, slave peoples would never be let go freely for no reason. And four, slaves do not become princes and kings. And what I love is that God did all of those things and basically all of them overnight. Babylon was destroyed. Babylon was not everlasting. The Jews would become become, uh, free very soon after this. And Daniel basically became the prince or the king of Babylon overnight. The greatest empire the world has ever known was just poof, just like taken out without a fight, and the Jewish people were on track to be released. But don't miss this. Daniel would die in Babylon alone, without family, and he would, he just, that was it. He didn't get to go back. He didn't get to go with the exiles back to Jerusalem, and I think a lot of people miss this in Daniel's story. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible, I think, is probably one of the most misquoted, if you grew up in the church at all, you might have heard this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And a lot of people cling to that. I don't want to take that away from them, but a lot of people cling to that as their own you know, life verse or kind of a, a verse for hope. But this is Jeremiah prophesying to people in Israel that they were about to be exiled to Babylon. And the verse just before it, he says, when 70 years are completed... in Babylon, I will visit you, this is God speaking, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, so Jeremiah is telling a bunch of adults that they are about to go to Babylon to be slaves, and these are adults who are going to go to Babylon for 70 years, so you kind of do the math, right, like you will all go and die in Babylon, but there is a future and a hope for your people, my promises will be completed, the Jewish people will come back, but you all will go and die in Babylon. And So the message, I think a lot of people hold on to a, a verse like that, like, I know the plans I have for you, you know, plans to prosper you. It's like, well, maybe not. Uh, you might die in Babylon, but God is in control of history. If your, your life might rise with the tide or you might be taken out in the tsunami, but God is still in control and he understands in, the, the, in his great plan, in his great scheme of things, he understands what's best, even if we're not necessarily on the winning side of that. So the message isn't, you know, worship God and your life will go well for you, but worship God because he is God, whether or not you have a difficult or an easy life because of it. And this Daniel is a perfect example of this. Sometimes he would, he would do the right thing, he would worship God, even if, he was, even if he was praised for it or if it sent him to the lion's den, which we'll be doing next week in our last week on Daniel. God is control of history. Every, every chapter I keep seeing this, God is in control of history. When things are sure to never change or to never fail, when you think something is sure, right, the, the unsinkable ship, right, what happens? Uh, when things seem sure, throw it up to God and see what he does with it. So what things seem sure now? It seems, when I, do, when I read about this, in, in, um, just in the media or in the research, it seems that people generally agree on this, that even though Christianity is exploding all over the world... People say it seems like it's decreasing in Europe and North America, and that's a trend that won't be reversed. So people say it seems like that's sure. They say it seems like the marginalized and the poor will continue to be abused by those who have power. It seems sure that the kingdom of God will not come to St. Paul or this country like it maybe was before. People say that. It seems sure. But it only seems as sure as the walls of Babylon seemed impregnable. Now, right now, I'm encouraged by this. I believe God's engineers and architects are waiting. His angels are lined up at the bank of the Euphrates and waiting for their sign, waiting for the water to go down. And I believe that they're ready to divert the Mississippi in a sense, not that our city is built like this, but that they are going to barge in. Uh, that I, I, I believe that, that you know, the God who died and rose again for us can, can do this, that he can do this again in our city and I believe that justice will pour out on our city, on St. Paul, like the waters cover the seas. I believe that single mothers might have good news preached to them and that the poor might be tutored and trained through the ministries we do here. I believe that the asylum seeker, refugee, immigrant, migrant worker would meet a warm face, ready to do life with them, do community, help them with whatever they might need. Let's see if I can find my last page in this. Daniel shows us that God is in control of history. And when it can't be done, when it seems like you can't plant a bunch of churches in 10 years, when it seems like you can't turn the tide of secularism and consumerism, when it seems like you can't bring justice and mercy to a city, God is waiting to do it. And he is waiting to surprise us with some kind of a trick, with something we're not expecting, that supposedly this impregnable city of secularism is about to have its Euphrates turned off and the floodgates opened. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns Babylon, which now, this is amazing, Babylon today stands as an absolute wasteland. It is a, it's not even, like some cities like Rome never really died and they just keep building on top of itself. Babylon is utterly forgotten in the Iraqi desert somewhere. And people don't even have, like are, the Iraqi government won't even let people dig there. So it's just like a big sand heap with a couple of trunks of stone sticking out of it. That's Babylon today. God can end the most powerful empire in a night or he can take a group of ragtag fishermen from the middle of nowhere and make their message the most enduring message on all of earth. God is able to do things that don't make sense, like sending his own son into the world to die for it, that we might be redeemed through his death on the cross and resurrection. Like Paul said, right, that uh, the, the message of the cross is folly. It seems silly. It seems like, it almost seems nonsense if you're only coming from a certain philosophical background. It doesn't make sense that God would do that. And it doesn't make sense that Babylon could be destroyed without a fight or that the Jewish people would ever be allowed to go home just for no reason, for free. It doesn't make sense that God would become a man and serve as a sacrifice for our sins, but that's how he works. He is in control of history and the writing is on the wall. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this message of Daniel that you are in control of history. Whether that means that we get to to rise with the tide, or if we are unfortunately caught in the tsunami, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are in control of history, that you know your plan, Lord. Whether we're in a in a, a Daniel-like spot and we're going to die as slaves, um, or if we're going to be the generation that is um, set free and able to make the exodus back across the Middle East, we thank you that you are in control of history, that you know best. Even when we're caught in the whirlwind of it all, we just uh, we praise you for your sovereignty, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.